Выйду ночью в поле с конем, Ночкой темной тихо пойдем, Мы пойдем с конем по полю вдвоем, Мы пойдем с конем по полю вдвоем, Мы пойдем... Hello! And you are listening to an episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Uh, I am going to be the host for today, just me. But I am joined, much more importantly, by my colleague, Lydia. Uh, Lydia, Hello, how are you? Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. I started talking early because I was too excited. Mm. Well, it is quite a, an exciting episode for all of our listeners today, because we're going to be talking about the best time to be alive if you were to listen to Russia, to Russian mainstream media, Freudian slip there, uh, Western mainstream media, the 1990s in Russia, and what a joy it was to at last be free before all of that democracy and freedom and potential was crushed by the evil dictator Putin. I'm joking, of course. It was an absolutely awful time to be alive. As a matter of fact, one of the worst times to be alive in modern Russian history. But we'll be getting to that presently, because Lydia here actually has some memories from that time. And Lydia, I think you wanted to start us off in a particular way to set the scene. Yes, <clears throat> because... Obviously, when the 90s happened, I was pretty young. Yes, contrary to popular belief, I'm not that old. But on a more serious note, before um, before we started this and while I was getting ready for the podcast, I talked to my mom because she was obviously an adult. And in my life, um, I've worked with veterans of the Great Patriotic War. And something interesting that I didn't think about before I started working with them is that actually a lot of them don't particularly like talking about the war. They usually have their story because obviously they have had to talk about their experience for quite a while, but quite quite a few times in their life. But Usually, if you start asking them some more personal questions, uh, they don't particularly like that because it's difficult. And something that was surprising to me in a way is that it was the same way for my mom when I started asking her questions about the 90s. Uh, because definitely, it was a very traumatic experience for, I would say, most Russians. And when last year when the smo started uh, i think that a lot of what a lot of people from outside of the country didn't realize maybe is that the initial fear that the russians felt when we were hit by the sanctions was not even the fear of a war or anything like that it was the fear of going back to the same time, to the time when Russia was very unstable, to the time where things were hopeless, to the time where you couldn't plan things because you actually didn't know what was going to happen the next day. So you wanted to tell us a bit about the time just before the Soviet Union went ploof to set the scene for plunging into that catastrophe well 
What's interesting is that my very first uh, memory, or I should say memories, uh, are from the Soviet Union. And uh, actually, a lot of the time people people like to ask me, especially my foreign friends, what were the 90s like or what was it like when Russia became the Russian Federation and the Soviet Union ceased to exist? And the way I like to think about it, when I think about my childhood and I think about the Soviet Union, everything was just gray and beige and calm and kind of peaceful and empty because the stores were kind of empty during that time. And it was just like a very still lake. Not much was happening for me as a child, at least. And so just picture this world where there is not a lot of color there is not a whole lot going on there everything is just just very calm and I remember um because well I'm kind of you know moving forward a little bit because we're going to talk about that but I remember my very first memory when I realized that in some way, in some grand way, my life as a Soviet child was over, is I remember I was uh, on my way somewhere with my mom, and we were in one of those underground passages. And one of the signs of the times in the 90s, as probably a lot of our listeners know, is there, there was a lot of, there were not there were obviously stores, but not the stores in the sense as we know them today. Uh, there were little kiosks. There were little, little stores, little shops with things. And so we were in one of those underground passages, and I saw something that I had never seen before. It was a small kiosk, and it was full of chocolate and candy and gum and it was so bright it was snickers and bounty and and all of those western things western candy and it looked so wild to me because it was probably one of the brightest things that i'd seen in my life and it looked so exciting but also at the same time so foreign and out of place there and so to me that that is kind of one of my first memories and how I I even without understanding it really realized back then as a child that something has changed in my country and that things were never actually going to be the same. Okay. The way we are going to progress the rest of this episode is that I am going to provide as my little old self a little bit of a brief overview of a year and what happened in it and Lydia is going to tell us a bit about what she or people she knows remember of that year and we're going to start with the first year 1992 but perhaps reflecting the fact that everything nothing was really planned nothing really seemed to have a plan as a matter of fact part of the whole conceit of Yeltsin and the coterie of liberals around him who took power um, as the Soviet Union finally fell apart in its final months and took over in the new Russian Federation formally, officially, and completely um, at the very end of 1991. 
was a contempt for the idea of a plan. Indeed, the conceit was Russia had gotten into such difficulties by adhering to all of those five-year plans, and the government had intervened too much in the economy, tried to do too much. The point was to leave things to the market. So therefore, immediately here, even though actually the transition to a market economy as someone who was then advising them in the first few months of 1992, Jeffrey Sachs would say, the transition from either or, from a planned economy to a market economy or back or back from a market economy to a planned economy requires very intensive planning and actually a lot of action by the government because one way or the other, the government fundamentally shapes, being the ultimate enforcer, what an economy looks like, even if that's a market economy, just simply because the government sets the laws and is the ultimate arbiter. However, the first act on 6 January 1992, um, or that's when it came into effect because the decision had been made in late 1991, was by Yeltsin's first prime minister and economy minister, Yegor Gaidar, to free prices in the stores, except for bread. But the price on controls on bread were lifted in June 1992. So, even though, um, so the store shelves are bare. For the moment, all of the normal grocery shops are still state-owned by this point in January 1992. The idea was is that because there are shortages, if you let the market set prices, you will undercut the black market because then farmers can sell their produce at the prices they want through legitimate channels, which will put goods back on the shelves. This will result in price rises, but rising prices, i.e. being able people able to sell food or food goods for higher prices in Russia will also encourage imports of those same products because people want to get that higher price, which will fill out the shelves and end shortages and also stop creating distortions in this market. We don't have time to get into how it was that shortages in the Soviet Union developed. Suffice it to say that one of the paradoxes of the Soviet Union was that in 1990, the Soviet Union had a very good harvest, but shortages got worse. Um, how it quite got to be that way is beyond the scope of this podcast, but there it was. So Gaidar was trying to, he said, solve this problem. He also said that because of the breakdown in the state supply system, that in terms of food reserves that the government had access to, they had access to six weeks worth of food and that if he didn't do something to alleviate this people would begin to starve so his solution to this was to free prices because this would solve everything lydia what do you remember of january 1992 or 1992 in general and the freeing of prices and what happened in the store did the boom in the provision of consumer goods and food that gaidar predicted happen actually happen well Let's put it this way. Did it happen? Yes, it did happen. Because like I said before, the problem was that we didn't have um, a lot of things in the store, at least in the area where I lived. That was actually a big problem. Uh, then we were faced with a different problem. There were uh, goods on the shelves, but people couldn't afford them, at least the majority. Uh, because 
And and I feel like a lot of our listeners in the West will be able to relate somewhat because because of the inflation. But just imagine that some things would become 20 times more expensive uh, because it did happen to some of the things. And of course, naturally, back then I didn't um, realize that because I was not an adult. But what's actually funny in a way, now that I think about it, is food-wise, in some ways, it didn't change much for me because before our diet was kind of, you know, didn't have a lot of variety because there there wasn't a lot of variety. And then we our diet didn't have a lot of variety just because because we couldn't afford having a lot of variety. And Back then, I remember my parents obviously being very stressed. And um, I remember most people, as we do in Russia, we have our dacha, uh, which is basically your little piece of land with a summer house where you grow things. And a lot of the people were really struggling and were able to survive uh that's a dramatic word but it's actually not an exaggeration they were able to survive because they had some some potatoes in storage they had some carrots in storage and uh they they had some canned goods and sometimes they would exchange uh, things with their neighbors that's also something that i remember but basically it was just a it it was a very difficult time um the whole shock therapy because i i have listened to quite a few podcasts with professor sachs and i remember ah this is going to get a little bit emotional uh, for me, I guess. But I remember listening to um, one of his podcasts and where he was explaining the system and the so-called shock therapy that was prescribed to us by, you know, our government. And I guess you could say the West, because they were willing to to help us become more democratic. And he said in one of the podcasts that essentially what was done to Russia and the Russian uh, people during that time, the result of it could be described as economic genocide. And I remember um, listening to that and actually I started crying because that's exactly what it felt like, even though I was little back then, but just just the circumstances that the people were put in were impossible. Um, it's so interesting to me that you s- describe going on your dacha and potatoes. Now, I'm going to be reading at length here a bit from this book called The Godfather of the Kremlin by an American journalist named Pavel Khlebnikov. So this is what he writes of shock therapy or the effects that you are describing. Um, I knew what was going on with my grain supplies, Gaidar says. I knew how many rail cars of grain I had, how many reserves I had. I knew that at best, assuming complete freedom of movement and lowered consumption rates, we had enough grain to last us until the middle of February. Starving to death and freezing in winter, the two great uh, phantoms of the Russian imagination. Perhaps Gaidar could not be blamed for panicking. There is no time for discussions, he remembers thinking. People will begin to die of hunger. 
Gaidar knew that freeing prices uh, would unleash hyperinflation, but on 2 January 1992, all prices save for those of a few strategic goods were freed, and they immediately skyrocketed. Shopkeepers scrambled to add zeros to price tags. Shoppers wandered around in a daze. By the end of the year, the price of eggs had increased 1,900%. Soap, 3,100%. Tobacco, 3,600%. Bread, 4,300%. Milk, 4,800%. Savings accounts, meanwhile, yielded only a few percent interest, and salaries increased only slightly. The great mass of savings accumulated by Russians over generations was wiped out. Gaidar shock therapy, as the WAGs would soon note, was all shock and no therapy. Russia's gross domestic product plummeted 19% in 1992, another 9% in 1993, a further 13% in 1994, and so on for most of the 1990s. By the end, a huge superpower had been reduced to the status of an impoverished third world country. Now, reviewing the same policy a few pages later, this is also what Kalebnikov concludes about this. With Russia in a slump far worse than the Great Depression, i.e. the U.S. Great Depression, people tapped an old survival instinct. Amid rumors of crop failure and impending food shortages, millions of city dwellers traveled to the countryside to plant cabbages and potatoes in their garden plots. The arable land just outside Moscow was swarming with people digging and planting. It was back to medieval agriculture. Chubais and Gaidar were proud of the fact that mass starvation had been avoided. But it was avoided not because prices had been liberalized, but because the Russian people had returned to the countryside. It was with a shovel and a sack of seed potatoes that Russians escaped starving in 1992 and 1993. That's, that's actually very accurate. And I can also tell you something that, uh, you know, in, in the fall, when people, after people gather their crops and potatoes and carrots and usually how it works is that you can put uh your vegetables into storage right away you have to kind of spread them out in the sun so they get dry and you sort through them you know see if some are rotten or if you know the uh the rats or the mice or whomever got to them and then you know after that you um you put them into storage and actually you would see people going through obviously through the garbage you would see people going through the you know whatever um vegetables people threw out before they put them into storage because people were literally looking for food searching for food and something that people need to understand because some will say well uh, poverty exists everywhere, uh, which is true. Homelessness exists in, in most places and poverty exists in most places. Uh, but you have to understand that these were people who just a couple of years ago had stable jobs, had, you know, had their lives figured out. Everything was, was good. And like, I always like to describe, um, uh, the 90s in that sense. Um, also, an, another thing that's very characteristic for that time is what we call in, in Russian spontaneous markets, meaning that people would actually go through their their belongings 
and pick uh, things, that, anything that could, could be of value. And it could be, you know, like even metals or paintings, anything, books and clothes. And they would stand in the streets and they would try selling them uh, because, you know, they they couldn't really, they, they were looking for ways to make money. And the whole, you know, while I was listening <laughs> to, you know, to the whole freeing the prices, freeing the market, I actually have a perfect analogy for this. Um, something that People can criticize the Soviet Union and the system, and this this is, like you said, a, a topic for a different uh, time. But uh, something that can be said for the Soviet Union is that people from the moment they were born until the moment they died had a purpose and had a very clear vision of what they would be doing with their lives they knew that they would go to school they knew that they would have a job they knew that they would have a place to live they knew you know what kind of salary they could uh hope to get so they knew that they would have certain social benefits and all of those things and uh and the the best way how i can describe it is that i have a cat and if my cat, who's very much loved and has never been outside, except for, you know, for, for some visits to the vet, uh, even though she is very much, you know, an adult predator, if I let her outside right now, uh, she, she will not know what to do with that kind of freedom. And I can tell her, go, be free, hunt, but she's not going to do that. What she's going to do is be terrified and she's going to become an easy prey, uh, you know, for someone. And so that's actually what happened to a lot of people, because when we talk about freeing the prices and freedom and democracy in the market economy, you have to understand that those were people who didn't know how those things work, not because they were stupid, uh, but because they lived in the in a completely different system their whole life. And people like my parents, they had to find new ways to survive. They had to actually learn new new jobs and I say you know jobs in quotation mark uh, because a lot of the times it was selling something and so maybe you were an engineer you had an important job but then you couldn't do that job anymore because there there was no job for you in that field because that field essentially ceased to exist and so that's another part of this crisis is that people um we're not used to this kind of freedom uh, because they were not prepared for it properly. I think we'll return a bit to the outdoor markets because I want to get back to them, but I think I want to get back to them in, in um, well, whenever you want to come back to them, of course, in what you remember, um, Lydia, please uh, come back to it. But I mean, in terms of me reading out a quote about the outdoor markets, because I want to set the stage now, because we're still in 1992, about what was going on there. So going into 1992, as you mentioned, there were a lot of very smart people, including in the Soviet elite, but they didn't know how this market economy worked, and they understood 
Um, given the way the political system was oriented, there was the president and the parliament, but they hadn't quite yet worked out a new constitution. It was a very modified version of the constitution of the RSFSR from 1978. But the new – the parliament at that time was not called the Duma or the Federal Assembly. It was called the Supreme Soviet still, and what – the Supreme Soviet understood, okay, this is an emergency. Things just need to be done. If we just sit around here talking, nothing will get done. So we give the president powers to rule decree by decree for a year. After prices started being freed, um, another few things about that you have to know about the shock therapy were that um, shock therapy entailed as um, – Dave, the American economist David Kotz set it out, a set of policies, liberalization of prices, which we have discussed, m- macroeconomic stabilization, which meant reduction of government spending to achieve a balanced budget, strict limits on the growth of money and credit. For those of our listeners who do not know, the money supply is dictated by a few things, but one of but the money supply is usually measured in M1 and M2, at least in American textbooks, but that's what I'm working off of from memory. M1 is the sum of all physical money in circulation, so your coins, your banknotes. Obviously, as we move to digitalization, M1 might disappear as a concept or it might evolve. M2, which is actually more the more important part of the money supply, is all the different balances in different banks or different enterprises at any one time that anybody can lay uh, claim to. So those monetary resources that are not put out physically but are nonetheless something that could be realized in that either through transfers into accounts or not. Normally, M2 is not as large as all the possible legal claims on money, but normally you want M2 to be about half of all legal claims on money. So that's what we mean by the money supply. And the money supply in a modern economy is controlled by the central bank, in this case, the Bank of Russia. Three, privatization of state enterprises. Four, uh, abolition of the remaining elements of central allocation of resources. Five, removal of barriers to free international trade and investment. So Yeltsin and his team, led by Gaidar, and obviously with Anatoly Chubais being a constant fixture fixture in top Russian government policymaking circles throughout the 1990s, have the power to rule by decree and set this, and they do to try and implement this. And so um, what We've described the freeing of prices. Um, so what happened was is that to try and balance the budget, they slashed government spending drastically, which further depressed the economy as it removed a source of demand from the um, economy. So under the Soviet Union, government spending, which is a bit of a problematic concept given that it wasn't like The central government's budget was technically quite low, but given that the government controlled most of the meaningful factories, farms, and means of production, the government didn't really do stuff by spending. It did it through its enterprises, and which were controlled by the Communist Party, and enterprises and firms traded with one another in a planned economy outside the scope of this. But anyway… 
so you try to replace that with government spending, though, to basically as a source of demand. To balance the budget, these guys hacked away at government spending incessantly, but because um, tax revenue collapsed, because nobody was getting paid and the economy was contracting, so firms that had been making a profit and many hadn't been in 1991 in any case, as the economy, Soviet economy was already collapsing then, got even worse. So um, the deficit... Um, remain very high, even though actually they succeeded in cutting it from its 1991 levels in half. Um, the economy fell so rapidly that it remained very, very high. Um, it consolidated at 9.4 percent of GDP in 1992. Um, so to try and control spending, one of the things they did was they didn't just cut the budget. They actually set very, very low budgets, and then they didn't pay out what they were supposed to set out in their already very low budgets. So how did this work? Well, they either refused to pay people or because inflation was galloping ahead, they delayed paying people for several months. So whether that be a firm, say, supplying textbooks for schools or military officers and policemen, they wouldn't be paid for sometimes uh, one month, three months, six months, a year, and then a year late. Their salary for when they were supposed to get paid would arrive in the nominal amount that it had been promised then, but because of inflation, it was worth a lot less. And that is how they kept spending low and tried to cut down on inflation. You can begin to see the problem here because if payday isn't payday, people can't plan, and suddenly money becomes worthless because you don't know when you'll be able to access it. Also, as inflation galloped ahead, the legal claims on money in the economy, so on M2, skyrocketed. So to put this in perspective, consumer prices, um, David Kotz cites, rose by 520% in the first three months of 1992 alone. The money supply, though, so the amount of physical money in bank accounts and among enterprises and anywhere else, so that money supply only rose by 32%. So this meant that actually the value of the money supply had dropped by 80%, meaning that even as there's hyperinflation, a literal shortage of money developed in the Russian economy, which also explains why enterprises couldn't even pay people their much debased wages. They literally didn't have access to the money to do so because the central bank, paradoxically in the situation of hyperinflation, wasn't even printing enough money to make money worth it worth anything, which is part of why enterprises started handing out, to the extent they were still producing anything, part of the produce, what they were producing in an enterprise as a means of people bargaining for anything else that they might be able to get, however they could get it, because they didn't have the money to do so. Now, this might work somewhat, but you can begin to see the problem, because if you're, say, working in a steel mill, what are you supposed to do with rolled steel? Um, if you are working in an office, your office can hand you what? An idea? An idea that you've produced? No, this simply isn't going to work, and therefore people went without salaries, including, of course, very keenly here, um, law enforcement and police, which meant that police officers at best had to moonlight at other jobs 
or to spend a lot of their own time actually doing things like hunting for food, or um, what they often did is they sold their services to criminal gangs, and not even for money, but just to get something to eat because they weren't being paid at their jobs. And this, by the way, wasn't later in the 1990s, albeit that persisted. This was from the beginning of the 1990s. It pretty much started catastrophically bad and got worse from there. By the end of 1992, though, um, the Supreme Soviet was in revolt because they could see that this was a catastrophe, that everybody was getting hurt. So to put this in perspective, in just to give like one little thing about uh, falls in output. So um, in 1992 compared to 1991, which wasn't a good year, um, the production of passenger cars declined by 7%. The production of steel contracted by almost 20%. The uh, production of finished petroleum contracted by one-sixth. Um, by mineral fertilizer, i.e. to fertilize the soil for agriculture, declined by 20%. It's just an absolute catastrophe, even in 1992, to say nothing of we haven't even started yet with how bad it gets. So they just start demanding a greater share in economic policy making because they want to – they don't actually know what they want to do, but they know that Yeltsin and his liberals aren't – whatever it is that they're doing, this isn't working, and it's hurting a lot of people. Um, Yeltsin doesn't like this at all. He sees this as a challenge to his power, and well, he does do dismiss Gaidar and bring in uh, Viktor Chernomyrdin as a supposed compromise with the Supreme Soviet. As um, our trusty source here, Pavel Klebnikov, cites, Chernomyrdin, even though he was an older man who had made his career unlike the younger guys, Gaidar and Chubais in the Soviet system, so he was a well-established member of the Soviet party state elite, that is to say Chernomyrdin. Um, he actually shared a lot of the policy conceits of um, Gaidar and Chubais, and one of Chernomyrdin's deputies, to summarize what he was thinking going into 1993, um, was a man, man by the name of Yevgeny Yasin. And this is what Yevgeny Yasin said to uh, Hlebnikov, because he thought Hlebnikov, being an American, would sympathize with his point of view on this. Um, he said, Yasin said that um, the Japanese and the Germans after World War II had it easier. Their industry was destroyed. They were living under an occupation regime, and already much had been done to clear the ground and allow them to begin anew. Unfortunately, Russia doesn't find itself in such a situation. Interesting. <laughs> well, I wanted to say, uh, just for our listeners, that this this thing that you described with people basically trading with each other and first of all getting paid in whatever it was that their uh let's call it company for simplicity was producing that's actually very true because i remember living through a very uh lucky time when my dad was uh paid in um like um apricot basically canned apricots Okay. <laughs> and which which wasn't the worst of it because there were some people who would get paid in like 
nails and things like that and so people would trade or people would try to sell them for cheap and deal with it that way or uh, and so it was a mess in that sense people who were paid in some type of a food item were at least lucky even though it wasn't a lot of variety but then there were a lot of people who were not lucky at all yeah and so that's uh, the situation that's unfolding um, but going into 1993, with the end of rule by decree coming to a head, Yeltsin doesn't want to give up any of his power. Um, but the Supreme Soviet wants to, but a confrontation is being set up. So um, it looks as though there's going to be a showdown between the president and his parliament in early 1993, but then Yeltsin and the Speaker of the Supreme Soviet, um, Ruslan Hasbulatov, um, agree a compromise to hold a referendum in the spring of 1993 about, um, you know, what should be done with the direction of the country. And, um, the entire idea is basically, albeit it's not stated, the, the essential thing is who do you – the essential idea of it was to – for the du – for – I'm sorry, not the Duma, the Supreme Soviet still. The Duma comes at the end of the year to find out um, what would people rather have. Would people rather have a strong presidency or – um, I'm sorry to use this normative language, a normal democracy where it is the legislature legislature that is the most powerful branch of the government in constitutional terms, not the president. So um, as going back to David Kotz here, the battle between president and parliament came to a head at the December 1992 meeting of the Congress of People's Deputies, part of the Supreme Soviet and the actual working legislative part of it. Uh, we don't have time to really go into the structure of the Russian parliament in 1991 through 1993. It would get very complicated. Suffice it to say that this is the parliament. It has about 800 deputies in it. With Yeltsin's emergency powers due to expire, the stakes were high. After a measure to transfer authority over to key government appointments from the president to the parliament failed by a single vote, a compromise was struck. The Congress allowed Yeltsin to keep his decree-making powers for the time being, and a popular referendum on constitutional questions, which Yeltsin wanted, was scheduled for April 1993. In exchange, Yeltsin agreed to replace Gedar by Chernomyrdin. But with no change in economic policy following the cabinet reshuffle and with the continuing decline of Russian industry, relations between president and parliament deteriorated again. In March 1993, Yeltsin suddenly announced a special order of rule that seemed to imply the dissolution of parliament, but he quickly backed away from it in the face of widespread criticism, as well as uncertainty about what the armed forces would do in a confrontation between the president and the parliament. And we will get to what's going on in the Russian army separately uh, when we come to 1994 and the lead up to the war in Chechnya. In response to Yeltsin's action, an emergency session of the parliament met that same month. It removed some of Yeltsin's powers and came within 72 votes of impeaching the president. In the corridor after the failed impeachment vote, Sergei Baburin, a leading nationalist deputy, remarked that the Congress had just committed suicide, a judgment that would be proved right six months later. 
After March 1993, relations between Yeltsin and the parliament deteriorated further. There were disputes over many issues, including foreign policy, Crimea was actually a central question there, and constitutional questions as well as economic policy. The April 1993 referendum, which Yeltsin had originally wanted to deal with constitutional questions, had four questions. One, did people have confidence in the president? Two, did people approve of the socio-economic policies of the president? Three, did they want early elections for president? Four, did they want early elections for parliament? Yeltsin seemed to believe the referendum could solve his problem with the parliament. Yeltsin was confident he would win in the referendum. He had a significant power over the media, which, because it was still controlled by the state and people still obeyed the orders of the president, um, which he used to aggressively to campaign for a vote of yes, yes, no, yes, which was made into a jingle that dominated the airwaves. He sought to persuade people that the hardships associated with economic changes were due to the parliament's obstructions of his plans and that if the stalemate could be broken, the reforms would work. Polls showed that despite a decline over time in Yeltsin's popularity, he still retained significant personal popularity at that time, derived from his leadership battle against the Communist Party and his resistance to the attempted coup of August 1991. The bitterly divided and unruly parliament was decidedly less popular with the public. The results of the referendum were as follows. Confidence in the president, 58.7% to 39.2% who had no confidence. Socioeconomic policies of the president, 53% had confidence, 44.6% of those who voted did not. Early elections for president, 49.5% of those voting wanted early elections for president, 47.1% wanted did not want early elections for president. Early elections for parliament, 67.2% wanted early elections for parliament, and 30.1% did not. Yeltsin claimed the results as a victory, but they were not as clear-cut and as he had suggested. While on questions one and two, Yeltsin found strong support in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Yeltsin lost bo on both questions one and two in over half of Russia's regions. The referendum showed a public sharply divided in its view of the president and economic policy. What do you remember of the constitutional crisis of 1993 leading up to October 1993? Uh, well, I, for, for obvious reasons, I remember, I don't remember much uh, of the events that were leading up to it because I was very little, but I definitely remember what happened later. But overall, and we actually talked about it with my mom a little bit, um, regions as probably well i don't know how many of our listeners actually know about this but the regions were divided in that sense uh because some were more i guess in favor of uh, returning to some type of a communist socialist regime uh because i feel like a lot of people by the time realized that this was not the way and so something had to be done and so there were some governors in some regions my region actually being one of them they they were not exactly supportive of Yeltsin and but overall I would say from a regular person point of view you have to understand that this this was a very different situation in some way uh, from what we are having right now. In what sense? Uh, 
because people have time to be very invested in political things and really understand the nuance, usually when they have other things under control. Uh, unfortunately, the situation was so bad, especially in the regions, is that a lot of people, mostly what they could do was watch the events unfold because they were busy surviving. And so what I remember is that obviously there was a lot of political talk all the time. And there were a lot of most of the uh, mainstream newspapers that we had, you know, the popular ones, they were they were like, from what I remember, they were like 80% politics. That's what it feels like. But overall, people were just very tired. People were just very scared. People didn't really know what to expect. People were stressed all the time. And so in some ways, they were very invested because it was their future. In other ways, they were they, they were not as invested because they they were just trying to survive. And so I feel like a lot of those events, especially if you lived in, in the region, in the regions and not say, you know, in Moscow or St. Petersburg, people people were just watching things unfold because back then we were dealing, uh, well, the inflation and the market things we talked about at length, but also uh, some regions had it better than others, but in a lot of regions, they were regular, um, they would turn off the water and electricity. And so that actually added another aspect to the whole survival thing. So, and I feel like in some ways, that's actually what enabled Yeltsin. Well, before we get to framing the events of October 1993, what do you remember of those days? And what do you remember from people who you've later talked to who've talked about October 1993? Well, I remember just from, you know, from watching my parents and from talking to my mom, what she mentions the most uh, is the feeling of helplessness uh, because Russia is so big. And obviously those events, if you look at it from sort of, you know, emotionless point, uh, they were very contained in the sense that it was happening in Moscow. And for for some Russians, especially back then, it was kind of, you know, a different planet in a way. And so it wasn't as scary militarily, you could say, or, you know, f from, from that point of view. But it was very scary because... Mm, People were afraid, just like they were afraid uh, in the very beginning of the 90s. They were afraid of disintegration. They were afraid of unrest. They were already dealing with a lot of the crime. And so seeing, uh, you know, seeing tanks on the streets of Moscow, uh, seeing people injured, uh, seeing unrest and not being able to actually do anything about it was very scary. It was very nerve-wracking. Um, and I just, when in general, overall, when I think about the 90s, uh, personally, and when I talk to the people who lived through them, um, a war, a real war, like, for example, that the people in the in the Balkans were dealing with is a very scary thing but a war also has sometimes uh, a mobilizing effect on the people because you have to actively fight for your survival 
um, you have a you have a mission, you have a goal, you you have something that you need to achieve, something that that is very characteristic uh, of the '90s. I feel like at least that's how it was where I grew up. Is that feeling of kind of gray hopelessness, and just because people were people were just completely lost. <laughs> they they couldn't understand what was going on they understood that something very scary was happening but they they were just they they had to think about so many things and worry about so many things and it was just a very it was a very dark time in that sense well for those of our listeners who do not know what happened in uh late 1990 three is that Yeltsin decided that he'd had enough of the uh, parliament trying to be a parliament. And on 21 September 1993, he issued a decree saying that the parliament was dissolved. Um, this was after he had gradually stripped uh, his president, uh, Ale Vice President Alexander Rutskoy, of powers. Um, on 22 September 1993, 93, in response to Yeltsin decreeing the parliament dissolved, the Supreme Soviet said they had most certainly not been dissolved, only they could decide when to dissolve themselves. And the Supreme Soviet and the Constitutional Court both ruled that what Yeltsin had done was unconstitutional. Uh, the Supreme Soviet voted to impeach him, and they swore in Rutskoy as president. And Yeltsin said, well, oh, you want to get me out of here? Just try it. So they both began soliciting for support from the armed forces and the interior ministry. Yeltsin had the interior ministry, in terms of the loyalty of its top leadership, very much locked down. But when I and also he had help in that uh, the mayor of Moscow, Yuri Lushkov, was very much on his side, and actually a uh, then young Sergei Shoigu actually went out into the provinces soliciting for basically um, armed thugs among local political grandees or whoever was connected to to come to Moscow to come and to demonstrate against parliament and beat up any of its supporters. On parliament's side, you basically had a very eclectic mix of supporters, most of whom were what they called the Red-Brown Alliance. So a... Um, uh, supporters of parliament, or at least the ones who came out in the street, often tended to be communists or extreme nationalists, thus uh, the um, uh, rather colorful image put out by parliament's opponents of it being a red-brown alliance. Um, rather than take the side of the legislative branch, Western governments lined up against the parliament. Now, here is something that I want to do to before we get into what I think was uh, part of the a big part of the reason why, when we talk about Russian liberals, we're not very nice to them. Um, Lydia, in the Soviet times and since, what are the main preoccupations when it comes to liberals and the state? And what do they think the biggest problem with the state is? Well, I think if you ask the liberals, I don't know if you're looking for a specific answer. But I feel like the their biggest concern is always that the state is 
too controlling because I feel like to the liberals and our listeners need to understand that when we say liberals, we mean it in a very specific as in like Russian liberal. It's it's a specific breed. Let's put it this way. Um, there is always this concern that the government is too controlling and wants all the power, and there is not enough democracy. That's that's the general attitude. I feel like. Okay, well, here is the thing. So Yeltsin is supported by Russia's liberals in moving against the parliament which is the legislative branch that people have voted for. So the liberals in this case are supporting executive power against um, legislative power, but they say that the um, state has uh, too much control. So I wanted to uh, read out two quotes here. One is from a book by a... um, American, I guess you could say, like uh, security, um, per, a uh, security professional, and um, Dale Herspring about the Russian army. And so, for those of you who do not know, um, Dmitry Volkogonov was a senior general in the Soviet army who also wrote history books. And because he had access to the archives and he started writing under Glasnost and he started discovering some less than pretty things about Soviet history, he wrote these big expose biographies about how terrible Lenin and Stalin were and about how, you know, abuse of power was such a bane in uh, Russia's history. So one of the senior um, politicians in the Supreme Soviet on 3 October called Volkogonov to plead with him to try and plead with his fellow generals uh, to not send the army against the parliament. And this is what Volkogonov, according to Herspring, said to Voronin. Yeltsin was the country's president. He had issued a lawful order in writing and that the army would carry it out. End of story. The military's job was to neutralize opposition in the White House, i.e. the Parliament building, a task it carried out successfully in a relatively short amount of time. The actual arrest of those who had seized the White House was left to the country's security services. Rutskoy and Hasbulatov, as well as Generals Achalov and Makashov, were arrested and sent to Lefortovo prison. This was uh, during the crackdown. So, Mr. Liberal General, uh, the biggest problem with state authority is when he's um, being called and having someone please uh, do something to persuade them not to crush a par- parliament. He's like, ha, 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 you know, eat you know what. Yeah, but, you know, and <laughs> this this has to be said that Yeltsin, uh, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone that the longer he stayed in power, the more his popularity declined. But he was not very popular even back then i guess you know it's not surprising to a lot of people but i have to throw it out there because even back then there was a lot of um satire aimed at him and like i mentioned those newspapers that we had they were filled with satire and all all of our politicians and then the longer yeltsin stayed in power Basically, from what I remember, that pretty soon after that, he started his embarrassing 
uh, things that he did, and so which didn't make people like him any more than they already did. Um, the other thing that I think, um, although I can't find the quote, is from Natalia Novodvorskaya, who was a prominent liberal dissident in during the whole um during the late soviet period and she said that she wished she could have had a gun and uh been there on 4 october 1993 in order to uh shoot a lot of the supporters of parliament herself and that it was necessary to kill a lot of them to purge a lot of what was wrong with russia so these are just two examples of the reactions of Russian liberals, and the political class most closely associated with Russian liberalism, so Chubais, Gaidar, etc., all lined up behind Yeltsin in sending army tanks into Moscow and shelling parliament. At least 187 people were killed in the so-called October Crisis, but it's likely that it was actually more. So Yeltsin um, shells parliament and destroy and uh, it's a, has a burned out husk, um, and uh, it is celebrated in the West as a blow for democracy. Well, I guess that's one way to look at it, <laughs> but I, I'm saying this very ironically, obviously, because I, I don't I don't think that. Russians, especially back then, they already got their taste of democracy and seeing something like that in the streets of their capital didn't exactly scream anything positive to them. Yeah, I think that that is quite interesting that you note that because um, it... It's afterwards that things politically start to go wrong for Yeltsin, and he starts um, to lose um, a lot of a lot of its popularity. So um, I found the quote from Novodvorskaya. So with your permission, I'm going to uh, read it out in full. It's uh, quite frightening. Um, so. This is what she wrote. On the night of 4 October, we had a choice, to kill or to die. We preferred to kill and even found moral satisfaction in it. On the morning of 4 October, the volleys of the tank guns broke the sky-blue silence, and we caught each sound with pleasure. And if during the night they had given tanks to us, Democrats and humanists, nobody would have hesitated. The White House wouldn't have survived till morning. Not even ruins would have remained of it. I regret only one thing, that some people left the White House alive. We are not dealing with people, with equal opponents, but with some evil black fog. To deal with it, we need bullets. You don't count the enemy's losses in battle. They died at our hands, at the hands of the intellectuals, who had consciously and forever abandoned the flag of doomed pacifism and powerless humanism. I know that 20% of my fellow citizens regularly vote for communists, fascists, Zhirinovsky and simple filth, and I am completely prepared to get rid of every fifth person. I am no longer afraid of Pinochet. I am prepared to use any methods to win this civil war. 
Uh, well, I think this quote is actually very telling because it made me think that that's a lot of the attitude uh, that we have in the present day. I, I think that it's very interesting because even though the events are very different, but you can see a lot of the same attitudes because just like today, uh, the modern liberals, uh, Russian liberals, they refuse to accept uh, that the majority of people want something that is different from what they want. And so, and they condescendingly call those people, um, they in Russian, they call them like the gray mass, or they call, they say that we have a hive mind. And when in reality, uh, the society back then uh, wanted certain things, wanted order, wanted peace, and actually some i read an article from one of our political experts and he mentioned that in in his opinion uh, the events of 1993 uh they created uh, this mm, distrust in the people and in the government and that actually took uh, quite a long time to overcome and one could argue that pe people in some ways still haven't over uh, overcome it uh, because the people wanted something very different from what i guess let's call them the liberals wanted and so and yes uh that that was definitely the beginning of the uh real decline Yeltsin's popularity. Yes, because what Yeltsin then did was he and his uh, team of top liberals who'd always been worried about excessive executive power and uh, the state having too much authority wrote the basically the present constitution of the Russian Federation, where the president is very, very powerful. He can appoint the cabinet and um, he can appoint the prime minister. The Duma technically can, but if they refuse the president's nominee for prime minister three times, it is the president who can dissolve the Duma and call new elections. But this doesn't mean that the president himself is up for election. So basically, the Duma exists um, at the sufferance of the president per the constitution um, under President Putin, it doesn't quite work that way, but we'll get to why next time we have an episode on the 1990s. Um, but suffice it to say that that's the constitution that they write. Um, so it's December 1993. It's just after, uh, just two months after that they have written this new constitution, dissolved the previous parliament by fire, and the largest party to win to get seats in the Duma, albeit far from a majority, is the so-called Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, which, as anybody knows, is neither liberal nor democratic, nor really a party. Um, <laughs> it was kind of until he died in 2020, late early 2022, a Vladimir Zhirinovsky fan club. And all you need to know about, the, about Vladimir Zhirinovsky is this. He was an outrageously horrifically anti-semitic man who was also jewish and known to be jewish uh, that's it, it's um what we call here in britain the not the ldpr itself but there's we have here in britain a party called the monster raving uh, raving loony party and i think the ldpr is kind of russia's equivalent of the monster raving uh loony party but you're never quite sure if they're 
if all of them are fully insane or if um, uh, some of them are about to uh, break down in their act and start guffawing with laughter. Yes, because actually, even though, and you don't have to agree with me on this one, but now, as an adult, when I listen to some of the stuff that Junovsky said when he was in, in his more serious moods, he was a smart man, and he actually had a lot of really good takes, in my opinion, especially when it comes to Ukraine. However, however, it is very true that back then, if we're talking about regular Russian perspective, uh, like I mentioned several times, the political satire that was prevalent, because something also I want to say that by the time, you know, we're talking 93, 94, even though things were definitely still horrible, but people get used to everything, especially if they're Russian people, they, they get used to things even quicker. And so by that time, I feel like people came to terms that we're free and democratic and so we have to somehow survive so i remember those by that time it became less turbulent so not to confuse with better but just less turbulent and the way how people dealt with a lot of their frustration with the government was through humor and so the way that the Liberal Party was viewed in Zhirinovsky in particular is that he was there for, you know, comedic relief in a sense. Uh, and I remember from those times, uh, they would uh, show a lot of the, you know, sessions uh, that the politicians had, and it was a mess. And people would argue, people would scream, people would do all kinds of things. And so most people didn't really particularly take him as a serious politician, at least, you know, and in, in the these places around here. It's also important to say about that election that the um, party put together by Gaidar, which was meant to be Yeltsin's party of support in the Duma, Yeltsin never joined the party, never really associated with the party, was a party call headed by Gaidar and Chernomyrdin called um Russia's uh choice that later morphed into uh our home is Russia or um our house is Russia Nashdom Russia however you want to translate that it came second in the vote totals and behind it barely behind our choice is Russia slash Russia's choice um because they're a rebranding of the same entity was the reborn communist party um led by that permanent fixture um, up to this point in Russian politics, Gennady Zyuganov. Um, and although the LDPR um, was at that time the largest party in the Duma, they pretty quickly just basically supported whatever the Kremlin said while uh, heavily criticizing the Kremlin, and it was the Communist Party which emerged as the main opposition to Yeltsin. Before I get into some of the anecdotes and tragedies, uh, further on, what do you remember as you talk about thing, the situation stabilizing, but that doesn't mean that it's getting any better or even ceasing to be getting worse, just um, the predictability of how much bad and how downward the trajectory is setting in. What do you remember of about 1994? Well, like I said, things stabilized. Uh, 
people understood that there was no going back. And so by that time, they were able to, most of the people were able to get used to the new reality and find jobs. Uh, like I mentioned before, my parents had to <laughs> had to work in, in different fields, let's put it this way. Most people I know um, worked in what what was called back then commerce, which essentially there were a lot of shops, stores, kiosks, so people were selling things. And uh, there was, because as probably, as you probably know, the 90s were the time when Russia suffered from major brain drain. And so a lot of the people who were more qualified and young, I guess, and more adventurous, they were able to leave Russia. And a lot of the people, they they had to sort of, you know, find different occupations. Uh, also, a lot of the things that, that were not normal when the 90s started, they became normal, which were not nice things. For example... Um, crime was rampant, uh, and I remember, hmm, well, an another sad thing, uh, which also, you know, I guess we, we didn't really talk about, but it's, it's a natural thing, and a lot of people like to talk about it, because I guess that's where the stereotype of a drunk Russian stems from. A lot of people, um started drinking because the russia had major alcohol and major drug problem uh, because people were so depressed and people didn't really a lot of people didn't have any desire to live to live or the means to live and even if they somehow managed to get used to the new reality that stabilized on some level that reality was not particularly one that they enjoyed and so that's something that you could see. For example, um, I'm not going to say that obviously nobody drinks in Russia, but just anecdotally, in my circle of friends, uh, most people either don't drink at all or only drink on holidays and very moderately. Uh, back then, that was not the case. You could see a lot of people drinking heavily, unfortunately. And you can also see a lot of uh, homelessness, or at least um, even if it wasn't homelessness in the Western sense where people actually didn't have homes, you could see a lot of people that maybe they did have a home, but they were drunk. And so most of the time during the day, they were just wandering around and looking for things. And that was all very normal. And also there was the general general feeling that settled in is that... Um, even though people individually made a lot of effort in creating this normalcy for their for themselves feeling of normal life overall there was there was this feeling of uh government not really caring on on this basic everyday level meaning that there was garbage on the streets um there was you know the a lot of, like, if you went to a park, a lot of the benches were broken. And so things like that, they became the new norm. And we kind of, we, we settled into this new Russia, whatever it was. Um, okay. Um, 
we've been going for about an hour, and I think we had planned to actually cover all of Yeltsin's first term, but I don't think we will because there's just so much to talk about in terms of a cataclysm. So um, I was instead going to ask a different question to perhaps uh, close up. From what you remember, from what those you know remember, which is that it is often said that in this time, great new freedoms were being introduced. Um, how free did you feel? Uh, there, let's let's put it this way. I'm, I don't want to paint it all in, in dark colors. Um, because even when I talk to my mom, who I've mentioned enough times on this podcast, hi mom, um, people... Um, how do I put it? Uh, there were some good things. People were enjoying some uh, some aspects of it, because obviously not everything was uh, was perfect in the Soviet Union, and so people were enjoying the variety. People were enjoying some of the freedom, the the media, because that's when we got hit with the Western media really hard in the nineties. They were enjoying some some of those, you know, you could say more Western things. Those were nice. I guess back, you know, looking back during the Soviet Union times, I guess people just didn't expect that they would come at such a cost. That's how I can summarize it. But in terms of like um, politicians um, and the politics in your region, would you say that the politicians became more concerned about the people? I particularly can speak about that aspect because if you ask me and how I assess it and also how those around me assess it is that people kind of felt very separate from the state. I can say that during this this time, you know, uh, living in Russia right now, um, I can see that people have a relationship with their government in the sense that they feel that they can affect some things. If they don't like something, they know whom to write. They know what to do. We have activists. And back then, it kind of felt like the government, in the sense, was somewhat separate from the people, if it makes sense. So the government existed in some type of a different space. And then there were regular people who were just trying to survive. They were deciding on the big course. They were fighting with each other. They were doing some things uh, locally and on the federal level. Uh, and then there was the, the everyday person level. I guess to some extent, and I remember my dad talking about it, some of it felt nice because... Uh, a lot of people didn't particularly enjoy too much attention from the government that they maybe received during the Soviet times. But also, the feeling of abandonment wasn't good. So, what did um, Yeltsin in 1994, he's gotten everything and he's therefore suddenly at the summit of his power, but here's the strange thing. Once this, I think, by the way, would characterize Yeltsin. Her spring certainly characterizes Yeltsin this way, which is that Yeltsin was very capable of smashing down obstacles in his way. When uh, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union was an obstacle in his way, he worked hard to smash that down. When Gorbachev was an obstacle in his way, he worked to smash that down. When 
the parliament was what he thought was an obstacle in his way to securing his power and this was all about yeltsin's power he smashed that down when there was nothing more in his way he had no he didn't know what to do and he retreated into his study and started um at best reading at most drinking a lot more and often not even really working what were your impressions from when you know you were really uh, were really quite young uh, of uh, president yeltsin so you know in this early period 1992 to uh 1994 well uh, i can say that initially what i felt and what i gathered is that people never really had a lot of trust in him um this is my opinion and i guess you know this is more in retrospect but i think that russians overall enjoy a very particular kind of a leader um which by the way in my opinion putin really fits um but yeltsin never was that uh because russians overall they enjoy someone who is more reserved and who is more i guess not so much um uh, out for you know for his own interests obviously but uh at large i feel like most people saw him as someone who used every opportunity to get ahead but was ultimately only concerned with with himself and not the country and as you know russians are very much i guess that's where the hive mind comes in because i guess we do have a hive mind in that sense but not in a negative sense uh russians are very community minded and very much they respect someone who is able to make sacrifices for the greater good and yeltsin never was that and i feel like at least around here, like I, I've made that disclaimer many times, he is not someone who had a lot of respect. And then uh, once he started drinking, and we're kind of, you know, getting a little bit further and, and you know, uh, on the timeline, he lost whatever respect uh, the people had. Because uh, I guess, you know, as we wrap it up, to kind of you know we'll leave it for another episode but i guess uh one more thing that i would like to stress is that um the 90s were a difficult time for russians not just because of all the economic things and other events that were happening but also because people lost their sense of purpose but not just on a personal level but also on on a country level as a nation uh, because imagine being this great power which for all its faults was very much respected and people still needed to you know that that was the ussr was a power and then uh we became a country free and democratic uh but not as respected and so when you have a president who gives you that feeling that he's not concerned with the well-being of the country and then starts drinking and behaving very embarrassingly that was a very huge blow to the people's pride because they felt that they were humiliated and this time they were not just humiliated inside their country but they were also humiliated on the international level and dealing with the humiliations of not even being paid Yes, there was a lot of humiliation. Any any way you look at it, it was a di very difficult time, which explains you know the the problems that we had. 
Yes, indeed. Yeltsin was, after all, a very uncorrupt, unproblematic figure. So, Lydia, before I get into this story, do you happen to remember two men by the name of Vladimir Gusinsky and Boris Berezovsky? Yes, because they were kind of very famous, or I should say infamous, during that time. So they were they were actually in the news a lot, and kind of in the news a lot, but also in the background a lot, because there were politicians and there were oligarchs or businessmen, as people would mostly call them. I actually think that the term oligarch that we use these days very often, it kind of, we started using it a little bit later, but back then it was mostly businessmen. So these two businessmen in 1994 hated each other. They absolutely hated each other because both started coming up about the same time in 1991, 1992, with first reselling commodities and then trying to take over the car sh dealership business. In Berezovsky's case, through a vehicle called Logovaz, while Gusinsky also had other business interests because Moscow, for the first two years after the fall of the Soviet Union, was a scene of gangland warfare that meant that the murder rate exploded to near or even beyond Brazil's levels in those in those days as two factions in purely gang terms, the Slavic gangs and the Caucasus gangs, mostly dominated by Chechens, fought for control. The gangs were both trying to get territory and economic assets to enrich themselves, and some gangsters became businessmen or oligarchs, but often oligarchs were hiring or patronizing gangs or giving them a cut of their business deals in return for protection and also attacking their rivals. So where a gang ended, where a private security firm began, and where a legitimate business began, nobody could quite say. And I don't think that you could fully unpack that even if you tried. It all kind of melded together. But these two businessmen, Gusinski and Berezovsky, both sought political influence and political protection. In Gusinski's case, it was with Moscow Mayor Yuri Luzhkov. In the case with Berezovsky, it was with the Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, our hero, your lovely first president, Lydia. Berezovsky got into favor with Yeltsin by getting in good with Yeltsin's bodyguard chief, General Borzhakov, and also he got in well with Yeltsin's daughter, principally by helping her out with a number of business deals, and she took a personal liking to Berezovsky. Not in that sense, don't get me wrong. It was just a lot more in a personal sense that she found him very agreeable to do business with. And Gusinski, by getting in with Lushkov, was getting in with Lushkov because not only was Moscow the one area of Russia that was actually experiencing any economic growth in the 1990s, not very much. It was very, very marginal. But the fact that it wasn't an absolute disaster zone made Moscow a relatively secure and nice place in Russia in the 1990s to the extent there was one, and there really weren't, even Moscow. But Moscow was a place where if you worked for the city government, you weren't paid much, but at least you were actually paid. 
you still got to keep your social housing, provided that you weren't murdered by gangsters or property developers or businesses who were often the same one and the same people trying to take your apartment. So Luzhkov actually ran a more or less straightforward city government, and it actually collected a lot more in rents from businesses than Yeltsin's federal government did on all of the federal government land holdings in Russia. And when you think about how huge Russia is and the very valuable land that the Russian government had access to, this tells you how awfully managed the Russian government was under Yeltsin and the liberals, and also that therefore Lushkov looked a lot better next to Yeltsin, and Yeltsin understood this and resented it, even though Lushkov was outwardly loyal to him, but also subtly critical of him. So a way that Barasovsky wanted to get at Gusinski was not just for business, but because he held Gusinski responsible for, in 1993, trying to blow him up with a car bomb. Whether Gusinski did or not, that's very difficult to say. We don't have all the facts of the case. It could have been Barasovsky just pointing the finger at one of his business rivals when any number of people would have wanted Barasovsky dead. Um, however, having gotten in good with Yeltsin's daughter, with President Yeltsin himself, by buying up the rights to publish Yeltsin's autobiography and then essentially overpaying Yeltsin for the sales, um, Barasovsky had in effect handed Yeltsin a bribe, and in such a way that Yeltsin could just say, oh, it's through book sales, and maybe even he didn't want to know too much about just how Barasovsky was passing him the money so that he, i.e. Yeltsin, could continue to look good. Suffice it to say that Yeltsin's daughter also didn't like Gusinski because his motorcade, when he went to work every day, Gusinski that is, into Moscow, often passed by a route used by Yeltsin's daughter. Yeltsin didn't like Gusinski because of this fact and also because Gusinski was linked to Luzhkov, and Barasovsky was able to seize on this and play up on, on it on how Gusinski was a threat to Yeltsin's daughter, and also the fact that because Gusinski had a television station that was outside of control of the government in any direct way, that is, that therefore he represented a threat to the president's power because of sometimes critical reporting of the Yeltsin administration on Gusinski's television station, ORT. So what did Yeltsin do? Well, Yeltsin ordered his bodyguard unit in unmarked cars but fully uniformed up to chase Gusinski out of his compound on a high-speed chase from the suburbs into downtown Moscow to Gusinski's corporate headquarters, then besiege the building, terrorize his bodyguards and his chauffeurs to and including threatening them with weapons, threatening them with hand grenades, uh, beating them up, kicking them literally when they were down in one case— some one of Yeltsin's security men kicked one of Gusinski's bodyguards in the groin. Gusinski pleaded for help, not knowing who was coming after him. As I said, where the line between business, private security force, the government, as we mentioned, police were often moonlighting for gangs or for private security firms, where all of that started and melded together, nobody quite knew. So he didn't know that just because some guys were turning up very well organized and in uniform, that they represented the government, as opposed to perhaps just being hired government thugs. And indeed, indirectly, they were, of Beresovsky against him, but also used by the president just against a guy that he didn't 
like because he was inconveniencing his daughter a little bit. Gusinski, in a panic, also called the local FSB office and begged for help. And the FSB did come to try and help, but then when they got told who they were dealing with, they too went away. And so eventually Gusinski and his guards had to surrender. Now, mostly this was a scare for Gusinski. He was soon out, and not just a jail, he was very soon out of Russia and went away for three months after this, which took place on 3 December 1994. In an episode called Faces in the Snow, at least in the media parlance of the time. But what it also signified is just how much the state had been captured, personalized, and privatized under Yeltsin, and how it didn't really kind of meaningfully exist. And that's just one example of crime and corruption in the 1990s. But Lydia, do you remember anything of, of this episode or other such episodes from when you were younger? Oh boy, do I remember. <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about the kind of, you know, the, we could say higher level crime that people talked about back then, but just on the everyday person level, there was definitely a lot of crime. And that's actually something that I feel like um, happened very kind of very early on when the 90s hit us is that uh, there was a lot of homelessness and which I've mentioned before. And also there was a lot of crime, like apartment robberies were very, very common um for example uh these days living in russia i actually can't remember the last time when i genuinely felt unsafe either on the streets or in my own house uh just things like that i mean they do happen i'm not going to try to paint uh russia as this you know heaven on earth uh but definitely it's not the norm back then it was the norm which is one of, i feel like one of the signs of the times in the 90s was that people started putting um bars uh on their windows especially if you live on the lower floors like first floor ground floor or second floor basically when there is a chance someone climbing into your apartment um also another sign of the time along with the bars on on the windows which was unseen during the soviet times were um metal doors like heavy metal doors and a little bit later on late 90s early 2000s they became prettier and uh sometimes you can't even tell exactly that it's in you know like a reinforced door but back then they were kind of you know they they didn't look very pretty but they were sturdy enough uh because you had to protect your your home uh that was the reality also there was a lot of um robbery on the streets uh that was a little bit later this particular memory but still uh when i was in school for example and uh, a little bit older which was you know which is why i remember uh obviously when girls get a little bit older uh they start wearing uh earrings for example simple gold earrings or because 
it was the 90s and a lot of us you know didn't have a lot of money so girls especially they would wear like those big fur hats that they got from their moms and they would warn us in school uh that if we our classes and late uh that we should be careful because there for example there were some cases in my city where people would get robbed on the street like they would have like their earrings ripped out of their ears they would have their fur coats or fur hats or anything that looked somewhat valuable and looked like it could be resold um they they would get <laughs> robbed basically so that was a risk uh there was also a lot of um uh pickpocketing back then uh which is also again happens i guess in russia uh but definitely not as common these days um there was definitely a lot more violence uh because like you mentioned there were there were a lot of gangs and so in a lot of areas there were a lot of those you know we could say lower level gangsters uh the they lived in the area and so usually they had places like cafes that they favored that they would go to often and so the locals usually knew that if you didn't want any trouble probably wasn't a good idea to show up at a certain place uh there was also a lot of uh, drug problem if we're talking about crime uh meaning that not only we already talked about how people were unfortunately drinking and using drugs trying to deal with the new reality but also obviously um there were uh, people who were dealing drugs and other substances and that was also very common and um so basically there there were a lot of things happening a lot of violence and genuine generally wasn't uh there was a feeling of unsafety when you were in in the city especially if you lived in the in the bigger city because i feel like just like like it happens everywhere i feel like when there is a smaller town people tend to stick together more uh but in bigger cities people mostly try to survive and it showed mm, i think uh on that note we'll wrap up for mo the moment but we'll be coming back to this subject and next time we will be dealing with when things start to turn oh no of course i'm joking when things actually get worse because <laughs> we've left off in december 1994 and that very month yeltsin was scheming against the advice actually of most of the military high command to launch the first war in chechnya and we'll be getting to what that was all about next time we will also be getting to uh the honest way that anatoly chubais dealt with privatizations which ensured that accountability transparency the rule of law were established i'm kidding abs of course not we're going to be talking about loans for shares and other privatization scams and then the re-election of president yeltsin which established the democratic practice of ballot stuffing and stealing the election with the complicity of the united states and the oligarchy that yeltsin himself had helped create in part through these corrupt privatization schemes so you thought things were bad now don't worry they get worse they do get worse we'll talk about it next time though <laughs>